We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Would you turn to uh, Ezra 10 this morning? It is true that we'll be picking up here with uh, kind of the second part of Ezra 10. Time ran out last week, and uh, so we'll pick up where we left off with a little bit of review just to uh, refresh our minds and to be able to make the connection between uh, the latter half of the uh, chapter and the first point we made last week, along with then what we'll be looking at here this morning. If you remember, uh, in Ezra 10, we said the truth that Ezra, uh, or the book is teaching us here in Ezra 10, is that sinners who fear the Lord will submit to righteous counsel. And we considered that last week through the example of the Israelites who had sin in the camp, as it were, and uh, were living in sin by their intermarriages with pagan wives, husbands. We worked through uh, that uh, explanation of that last week. We're not going to do all of that again this morning, uh, but we acknowledge the fact that not only uh, was this act of divorcing these wives permissible, but necessary in order to restore covenant faithfulness. And so uh, we can't just broad swipe every you know situation of divorce that's mentioned in Scripture and take it as prescriptive, if you remember us talking about that last week. This is a description of something that happened in the Israelite nation. That alone makes it somewhat unique because we're not a nation today. Uh, we're God's people, but we're not a nation uh, with those kind of governing laws and you know the same kind of covenant that uh, Israel has um, had with God. And so we looked at that and tried to work through that. And I'll mention a little bit about that again uh, here this morning perhaps to help clarify in your mind, but we we did say, in, according to, you know, 1 Corinthians 7, that uh, if you are married to an unbelieving spouse, you're not to divorce them. Paul tells us that clearly. You can have a sanctifying effect on them, and uh, by God's grace, they can come to know the Lord, and then you will be equally yoked uh, as, as one, as God has uh, desired us, required us to be. We... Um, we noticed that last week that Ezra uh, led the people uh, by giving them righteous counsel, but really it was this young man, or I don't know if he was young, but this man named Shechaniah who really kind of uh, was the spokesperson for the Israelites. Uh, upon them gathering together around Ezra at the temple, he spoke up, he, he chimed up and mentioned a kind of proposal that they should separate from their wives and to uh, restore that covenant faithfulness. And he calls upon Ezra uh, to make that move, to lead them in that direction. And um, let me pick up in verse 5. It says, Then Ezra rose and made the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. That is, the word concerning uh, putting away their spouses who were of, of foreign origin. 
uh, verse 6, Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he had came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. So even though there's a proposal made, a movement in the proper direction, that doesn't mean that there's still not sorrow over the sin that's been committed. It's still a heavy, heavy matter to Ezra on his mind. And so he continues to grieve that and mourn that. And we could even say there's not really been action made yet. There's been a proposal. There's been acceptance of that. But how many times have you heard someone, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll change, I'll do that, and then there's no action. There's no true repentance. And so perhaps that's, you know, how Ezra maybe feels in one sense is, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they've accepted this, that they've made an oath, but, you know, oaths can be broken, promises can be broken. And so there's still, there's still a, a hint of, of sorrow over the situation, the sin that's committed, the guilt that's been imputed to Israel. Verse 7, And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. And that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and the elders, all his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. This morning I want us to look at um, really verses 12 to 17, but kind of starting back here even in verse, um, verse 9, really, and consider the truth that not only sinners who fear the Lord respond or, or submit to righteous counsel, but also sinners who fear the Lord will respond righteously. And we see that example in the Israelites in this particular situation. Look with me uh, at verse, uh, well, look, pick up with me at verse 10, and then uh, we'll be looking at verse 12 here in just a moment. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. So Ezra is calling upon them to confess and to do God's will. That is really what repentance is. It's confessing your sin. It's turning to the Lord and saying, I will do what you've commanded me to do, and I will abstain from those things which you've prohibited me from doing. And so he's calling them to repentance. That's, as we said last week, a good pattern for us as we call others to do the same, or perhaps uh, it's necessary in our own lives as well. Then verse 12, then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, the idea being with all and with one accord, they were all in agreement. They said, yes, and as you have said, so we must do. The response that they give here reveals the people's intent to submit to the righteous counsel of Ezra, as we talked about last week. And I think their swift response shows awareness, not denial of their transgression and guilt. You know, they didn't hem and haul and say, well, it's not really like that. You know, let me explain what really happened. No, they admittedly say, yes, as you have said, we must do. 
I'm sure their righteous response here must have caused their spiritual leader, Ezra, great joy. Don't you think? To have that kind of response? How often do we desire that but don't get that, you know? Perhaps with someone we're working with, perhaps, you know, even your own pastor at times, or you to a child that you're trying to help come along in the things of the Lord. Hebrews 13, 17 commands the church to obey its leaders and submit to them. But it also says, you know, you know willingly submit, obey, because when you don't, what does it cause? It causes them to groan. And we shouldn't be that way for our spiritual leaders. We should cause them great joy. And we can do this when we obey and submit to their leadership. When people are not walking righteously nor willing to listen to counsel, it, it pains the leadership of the church, or pains a parent, it pains a mentor, a, 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 you know, some kind of spiritual mentor in your life. And as Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, it's unprofitable for the church when it doesn't submit and obey. So we take, we take that uh, command seriously. Now, despite their willingness to do as they had been commanded, the people acknowledged that the conditions made it somewhat difficult to resolve the issue on the present occasion. Remember what verse 9 says? It says uh, they, they were sitting in the open square of the house of God, the temple, trembling because of this matter, the, the weightiness of it, but also what? Because of the heavy rain. It's a kind of an interesting you know, inclusion here. You know, why, why are we talking about the weather? Uh, well, I think it's, it demonstrates that you know, this... One, it was a heavy matter, but two, it's, it, it's a solemn occasion, and, you know, it's kind of a somber occasion. There's, you know, it's probably cloudy, the rain's falling. You know, imagine kind of, you know, the weeping that's going on as the rain's falling. It kind of just puts you into the situation here that uh, it's, not a, it's not a, you know, happy, sunny day. It's a heavy, heavy matter, and the rain isn't making it any easier on them or on uh, kind of coming to a solution here. Verse 13 uh, tells us, um, well, the, the people respond, they say, but there are many people, it is the season for heavy rain, and it was raining, and we are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. So we see a willingness to obey, but a kind of practical acknowledgement that this isn't going to happen in a day or two, and the weather, you know, isn't really working with us here, and uh, there's many of us who have transgressed in this matter. So let's give this some thought. The people uh, admitted that they had greatly transgressed in verse 13. You know, some sins have little consequences and quickly are a thing of the past. You can deal with the problem and you just kind of move on. At the same time, there's other sins that take much longer to work through some sin pattern that needs to be dealt with, you know, uh, regularly. You know, maybe you need to meet with someone to deal with it. Maybe, you know, just continual accountability. Maybe simply the consequences aren't just swept under the rug. They take a long time to deal with. You know, they affect other people greatly. And I think that's one of these situations. Not only were there many people who had transgressed, so the process is going to take a long time, but there also needed to be time to deal with it properly. You know, we're not just talking about, 
you know, the sin of lying here where, yes, it kind of affects other people. You know, maybe it breaks down trust. We're talking about marriages here, you know, real people, a man, a woman, and even children. So to deal with this uh, matter uh, wasn't going to be, you know, a day or two. There needed to be a time to deal with all of this and for it to be done well. You know, I don't think kind of getting ahead of myself here, but I don't think Ezra was simply thinking, you know, let's deal with this today and your wives are out tomorrow. No, that's not consistent either with the character of God. There's compassion, there's kindness, there, there needed to be some time for plans to be made for, uh, you know, the, the broken situation here to, to provide, you know, the needs for the spouses that were, were leaving, the children that were being, uh, you know, torn, in a sense, from one parent to go with another. So, as we say, then, you know, consequences come from sin. And it's never easy. You know, this was the right decision, this is the right act, but it wasn't easy either. The consequences were great. It would take some time, more than a day or two, they admit, to deal with the issue properly. And a delay of time would not only permit an orderly process by the hands of the officials, but also, as we said, it would give time for the families to kind of, you know, create a plan. You know, what's going to happen here? How are we going to deal with this? Everyone who had committed the sin of intermarriage was to come at an appointed time. Uh, Look with me at verse 14, what uh, Ezra records here. He says, the people respond to Ezra and they say, please... Let the leaders of, an, of our entire assembly stand. And let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at, at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. So we see here really the, you know, the objective here is that not, you know, not just simply to get things in order, but there is a real moral issue going on here. They recognize God's wrath was upon them in this situation. And in order for that to be averted, they must, to, they must uh, obey Ezra's command and deal with the issue properly. So the elders and judges of each city would, uh, were to come to Jerusalem you wonder, you know, why that? Why not just let the priests who were in, in Jerusalem deal with, you know, every situation here? I think one of the reasons being is that, you know, when you, uh, the leaders and the officials of each individual city would know the circumstances of each situation. You know, they know, they know Joe Smith and they know his situation. You know, the person in Jerusalem, the priest in Jerusalem doesn't know, you know, Joe Smith. He doesn't know the particular situation going on here. And why is that significant? I think it's because as they dealt with each particular situation, and they did do that, you know, they probably met with each couple and walked through the situation, sought to understood understand what's going on. One of the reasons being, I think, is because not necessarily every marriage uh, was a illegitimate or unlawful marriage. What do I mean by that? You know, maybe that kind of is contrary to what I said last week. But what I think is maybe going on here is that there's situations maybe like the situation of Boaz and Ruth. Remember, Ruth is a Moabite. She was of pagan origin. But remember what happened early on in the chapters of Ruth when she's returning with Naomi? You remember the kind of uh, proclamation she makes, if I can put it that way? 
You know, my God will be, your God will be my God, your people, my people. There's a, there's a conversion going on there, a coming into the community of the, of the people of God so that she is now, you know, in all really respect, a Jew who's following the, you know, God's, the, the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. So there could be instances like that here where, yes, you know, from kind of the outside perspective, they're a pagan wife because they're of, you know, Moabite origin. But when you, you know, kind of get together with them and talk about the situation, they may have come to find out that, well, indeed, this, this woman, this man is actually now a follower of Yahweh and therefore, you know, would make it no longer an unlawful marriage, you know, supposing that that kind of conversion happened, hopefully, prior to the marriage, you know, Maybe that wasn't the case, but that would be the ideal situation. So uh, we can see in this passage a concern for justice to be served properly, not just broad swiping the situation, all of them all together, but really uh, knowing each, each individual situation in order for justice to be served properly. But uh, more on that later, kind of like we just talked about here. So the additional time would also permit the people to make necessary arrangements for their spouses and children who were to be sent away. As we said a moment ago, I highly doubt that Ezra's intention was for the women and children to be kicked out onto the street. You know, whatever, go your way, you know, fend for yourself. Such a course of action would be inconsistent with God's character. I just, my memory kind of went back to Abraham and Hagar. It's not the exact situation. Uh, there's a lot of differences. But remember, even Abraham, when he sent Hagar away, he didn't just simply kick her out. I mean, it kind of seems like that. But he did give her some bread. He gave her water. And remember that God cared for her. Remember when she was out in the wilderness with her son? God, you know, comes to her uh, through an angel, and he you know, points her in the direction of water. He provides for her. He's compassionate upon her. And so um, we, I think, can rightly presume that Ezra's concern was consistent with God's character, who was equally compassionate on those who were, you know, sent away, as it were, who didn't have the watch care of a husband or some other person to care for them. But, of course, the text simply does not tell us what happened to those who are sent away. I think there is some purpose in that, so that, yes, hopefully there was some happy ending, but also to emphasize that there is no really, you know, there's always consequences to sin, and really, you know, can all repair be made? Not necessarily in every situation, and so it's a heavy matter indeed. So although the text doesn't tell us what happened to those who are sent away, it we may consider the fact that they journeyed back to their homeland and back to their father's home. Uh, remember, that's what uh, Naomi told Ruth to do, along with uh, you know, her other daughter-in-law, to go back to the care of her father. And, of course, we know she didn't do that, and that was a good outcome for her, but perhaps that was kind of what happened here. Went home to their father's household and very likely was remarried, eventually, to some you know, other person of their homeland. We just, we don't know. It's only speculation. 
Of course, whatever the case may be, divorce is, of course, always messy. It's effect, it affects our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with others. Sin always has consequences. And as we see in verse 14, divorce incurs the wrath of God. It disrupts families, strains relationships, creates, uh, creates financial burdens, brings heartache and hurts, or we could even say victimizes children. It's never easy. Um, Of course, as we saw in, uh, where is it? Uh, In verse, uh, here it is. Verse 13. But there are many people, uh, it is the season of heavy, for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Uh, and so they uh, call the leaders to come, and the elders and judges of their cities, until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. So they were very cognizant of the fact that God's wrath was upon them, as we've said already. Um, a similar situation is seen in Joshua 7.1 where there's a recognition that they've, they've uh, invited the wrath of God by their sin. God's wrath is upon them. So their proposal concludes with a moral objective. By responding righteously in this situation, God's wrath would be, would be averted. And that was their goal, their aim. Uh, really, this is, an, is in an individual sense, but really also in a corporate sense. Um, guilt had been imputed to the nation of Israel's account. And this was the only way for that to be undone, if I can put it that way, was by, uh, by a confession of the sin and a acting righteously by putting away these, these wives. In addition to repenting, though, the law specified that even an unwitting breach of the law created guilt and required an atonement. And so we see even in verse 19 that uh, it says, And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were the sons of uh, Jeshua, the son of Jehazdak, and his brothers, Mehesiah, Eliezer, Jerob, and Gedaliah. And it says, And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives. And being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. So along with the repentance, according to the law, there was also a ram offered as a trespass offering. And in a real sense, this removed the guilt that was upon the nation of Israel. Um, And it caused them to be in a right relationship within the covenant community. We see uh, in verse uh, 16 that all except for four men agreed to this course of action. They'd all made the oath, all agreed to the proposal that we'll turn away from the sin, we'll put away our wives, but we see here that there are four. Verse 16, it says, Then the descendants of the captivity did so. Uh, or excuse me, uh, back up to verse 15. It says, Only Jonathan, the son of Ahasel, and Jehoshiah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shebathai, the Levite, gave them support. 
I take that to mean they gave support to Jonathan and Jehaziah and that they opposed this idea. Now, how do we take this? You know, it may be that they were voicing their objection to the specific process of dealing with the issue, but supported the basic idea. You know, we're not opposed to the idea that we need to divorce these wives. We're just opposed to the, you know, the method of dealing with the situation. You know, that would be giving them some credit, and that may be the case. On the other hand, perhaps, you know, they too had, you know, intermarried with pagan wives, or they had, you know, family members who who did that, and so there's some kind of, you know, biased situation here, uh, and they're, you know, unwilling to proceed because of how it will affect them or, you know, those close to them. Of course, none of their names are mentioned on the list in uh, verses 18 and and following, so it may be that they didn't indeed uh, marry uh, these pagan wives, and they just simply were objecting to the overall pro or the specific process. Well, in verses 16 and 17, we see the uh, they agreed upon the process, and they uh, put the process in action. It says then in verse 16, then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's households households were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And again, I take that to be they examined each specific situation. Verse 17, by the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. So here we see the specificity of interviewing, if we can put it that way, each individual situation. Their act of obedience described in verse 16 can be described as a righteous act. What do I mean by that? To turn away from sin, to repent, is a righteous act. You know, that's not just kind of getting yourself back to zero. God is pleased when we repent. That is a, if I can put it that way, a good work. You know, not in a salvific kind of way. But repentance is a righteous act. It pleases the Lord when we uh, respond in repentance. Of course, not that we are doing it in our own strength, but by the Holy Spirit's work in us. But nevertheless, God is pleased. And so we see then them responding righteously. That's what I mean by this. I think what Ezra is trying to convey, that their act of repentance is a righteous act before God. It is pleasing to him. And it is uh, by this that they find forgiveness. So Ezra selected men, presumably men who had not sinned in this matter, to examine each individual situation. We see the process took about 75 days to complete. And um, this figure then gives us, if we compare with the list from 1018 and following, uh, and we add up the number of men who had committed this sin, we see then that they dealt with uh, roughly two cases per day. That, that might be somewhat surprising. You might think, well, they, couldn't they have gotten through 10 or 20? You know, you know, how hard is this? But I think, again, it emphasizes the fact that this was not a rushed you know, process. They were methodically working through it, seeking to do uh, what was right before the Lord, to... to uh, to judge properly and to not, you know, presume upon things or, uh, you know, again, just take the situation uh, very seriously. <clears throat> and in addition to that, uh, 
that only 110 cases in 75 days were investigated reflects the care with which the whole difficult position was managed. Now, we saw, we have seen through the book of Ezra that lists are important. You know, we saw a number of them all the way starting back in, uh, you know, chapter 2 and other lists. Why all these lists or why, why this list specifically? You know, it's not the kind of list you want your name to be, to, you, know, to, you know, to make your name in this kind of list. Um, you know, being called out for the sin that you've committed. But I don't think that's the only reason that Ezra includes this list, is, you know, kind of just, you know, to blackmail certain people, as it were. But after all, it does take up over half the chapter, and so it is significant. I believe one purpose of the list is to remind the reader, you know, those who read it back in their day, the Israelites, but also us today, that leaders are not immune to sin. Why do I say that or emphasize that? Well, because between the priests and the Levites mentioned here in this list, there were 27 who had committed this particular sin. You know, this wasn't just the laymen who were kind of out, you know, frolicking around, misbehaving. But this was the leaders, the priests, the Levites, who were to be consecrated to the Lord, who were jumping in and joining in on on this uh, sinful practice. You know, what kind of example is that to everyone else? And so we see a significant number of those who had committed the sin, uh, you know, roughly a quarter of them were, were spiritual leaders, were to be spiritual leaders in the community. The book ends with the harsh reality that children had been born to some of these who had intermarried with pagan wives. That's, you know, that's not the harsh reality that they've been born but the reality behind that is that, you know, this isn't just simply, you know, divorce the wife, divorce the husband, and, well, you know, that's the reach of the consequences. No, there's children involved here. Um, look with me at verse 44. It says, All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. It's kind of a, you know, a very just uh, drastic or harsh a sombering way to end the whole book. Some of them had children. And I think that just causes us to pause and think about, you know, what that means. Well, it means there's broken families. It means uh, there's disruption. It's, it's never easy. It's always messy. Though the divorce was necessary to restore covenant faithfulness in the community, of course, it resulted in broken families. It left these children with only one parent, at least, you know, for a time. And even after that, you know, that's not the father they were born to. And, you know, we know the effects that has. We know the consequences, you know, the difficulty of, you know, dealing with that when they get older, explaining what happened and why, why it happened. And uh, it's, it's never easy. Imagine the grief in the hearts of the parents and children as they said their last goodbyes. This is the real deal here. You know, we kind of talk about it in the legal kind of sense and why it had to happen and, and the guilt and all of that. But this is real people, real situations, the grief in the hearts. I mean, we can assume that these husbands still love their spouses, <laughs> if they were, you know, good Jews, if they were uh, godly, 
God-fearing people, yet they knew that you know, this was the necessary uh, process that had to happen. But don't, not just imagine the grief in the hearts of the parents and children. Imagine how, too, the whole matter grieved the Lord. I think it grieved the Lord to see husband and wife separate. Necessary, but God has those you know, emotions, too, how it would grieve the Lord the whole matter, not just them leaving, but just all of it all together. Sin ought to grieve us in light of the fact that it grieves the Lord and all of its consequences with it. So today, um, may we consider the fact that just as sinners who fear the Lord respond righteously, we see that in the example of the Israelites, we too should have that same attitude. We sin. All the time, unfortunately, right? But if you fear the Lord, and I pray you do if you're a born-again believer, you too should respond righteously in any particular situation you find yourself in, in sin. Follow the example of the Israelites. Respond to righteous counsel that is grounded in the word of God. That is what righteous counsel is. You can't find any other kind of righteous counsel but that which comes from and is rooted in the word of God. So it may be by your own reading that you counsel yourself. But it may be that someone else comes into your life who knows God's word, a pastor, a parent, you know, a friend, who gives you righteous counsel. How do you respond to that? Do you submit? Be like the Israelites who did, willingly, quickly, with an awareness of the guilt that they had, uh, that was imputed to their account because of their sin. And also, then, if you find yourself in that situation, respond righteously. That is, repent. Turn away. You know, the Israelites could have easily said, but listen, you know, you see all the consequences this is going to, you know, create. You see the process, it's too hard. There's, you know, it's going to take too long. It's, it's not worth it. You know, God will overlook it. Let's just kind of move on. You know, sin has to be dealt with all the way to the core. Otherwise, I think we know what happens. It quickly grows back, and maybe even more extensively. And so we need to deal with it properly and thoroughly. Think this morning how you can uh, respond in the same way. Just some Additional application, though, as we close this portion, but also the whole book of Ezra, I want to note just a few more things this morning. This particular episode shows the danger of moral and spiritual apathy. When you don't follow the Lord, and when you kind of begin to walk your own way, uh, it has devastating consequences. It not only shows the danger of moral and spiritual apathy, but the importance of maintaining the identity of the believing community in a pagan world, and that's kind of their situation in Israel. But today, uh, we have a somewhat similar situation. We're not the nation of Israel, but though distinct from Israel, Christians in a similar, similar manner are called to be in the world, but what? Not of the world, right? We are set apart. We are, uh, you know, we are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood in that sense, in a spiritual 
family kind of way. A common theme in the Old Testament is God relenting from his anger when people repent of their sin. We see that uh, all throughout the Old Testament. And the prophets often calling the people to repent. And if they do, God will relent. Um, we, saw that, we see that even of pagan nations like the book of Jonah. God, you know, remember what Jonah says? I knew you would do this. As if that was bad, that God would relent. But today, those who are living in disbelief of Christ are under the wrath of God. They are in, under God's wrath at this very moment. And they will also suffer the consequences of that later on uh, in eternity. Of course, those who have believed in Christ have the assurance that they will not suffer God's wrath. Why is this? Because their guilt has been imputed to Christ. And Christ's righteousness has been imputed to our account. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Finally, sin affects our vertical and horizontal relationships. We kind of spoke on this just for a moment. And so, in light of that, it requires confession of sin to the Lord. What does 1 John 1.9 tell us? You know that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to purify us. So we must confess our sin to the Lord and also confess our sin to those who have, wrong, who have been wronged by that sin to make reconciliation with those people as well, with those horizontal relationships. Sin results in consequences that are not easily escaped. In the case of divorce, can you really ever escape all the consequences, at least in this life? Not, not necessarily. But you know, let's extend the illustration beyond divorce. I know that's the situation here in Ezra 10. But what about marital unfaithfulness? What about deceit? What about drunkenness, sexual impurity, anger, violence? You know, what if someone takes another person's life? Can you really undo the consequences of that? No. What if you, you know, take someone's life in a drunk driving you know, incident? What if you are continually deceitful? The trust that that breaks down and the length of time it takes to repair that. All these sins affect not only our relationship to God, but others. Of course, God will forgive us if we truly, you know, are repentant and turn from that sin. And we are commanded to forgive others. Ephesians 4.32 tells us this. But, you know, we can't, you know, we can't force others to forgive us, can we? And so you may live your entire life, you know, be what it may, not as it should be, but you may live your entire life with someone refusing to forgive you for a sin you've committed. That's sometimes the consequences of the sins we commit, despite the fact that they should be forgiving. It may be some time before the consequences are fully eliminated, and it indeed may be the case that they're not fully eliminated until eternity, when, uh, you know, when all sin is gone, and when we are with God. And uh, at that time, we don't have to worry about some of these things. 
But the reality is, and as starkly as Ezra, or excuse me, yeah, Ezra 10 finishes, there are consequences. Yet by God's grace, we can find forgiveness, and we can trust and have assurance in the fact that Christ has paid for those sins. We're thankful for that. Let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, as we close, may we be reminded, Lord, not of only the somber aspects of what we've seen here in Ezra 10, but Lord, the exemplary uh, attitude and actions of the Israelites when confronted by their sin, they submitted to that righteous counsel and responded righteously. May that be our attitude. May you help us as we seek to guide others into a similar course of action in whatever sin they may be in. And Lord, whatever sin that perhaps is in our hearts today, may we not look for excuses uh, or try to justify anything, but simply have the kind of mindset that the Israelites had when Ezra confronted, they simply said, yes, we will do as you said. Lord, may we be submitted to your word in that like manner, we pray even today in Christ's name. Amen.